everyone. My name is Sterling Shea. I'm an actor based in Dallas, but I've also been a casting assistant, audition reader, child wrangler. I've done festivals and improv and new works, but I wanted to keep learning more about the theater industry. So now I interview inspiring and successful creators who live in my neighborhood. This is Arts District, the podcast. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Thank you so much for jumping on with me. I know you're very busy. Um, I was wondering if you could just take us through your journey and tell us about your career path and how you got to where you are today. Well, it's a long story, so I hope you're okay with that. Yes, take all the time you want. (laughs) So I graduated from uh, what is now Texas State in uh, San Marcos. It was Southwest Texas State University. In those old days, you would, uh, if you were an artist, an actor in particular, your first job was to go find an equity theater and intern for a year and then get your equity card moved to New York. So I went to the Alley Theater upon graduation as an intern. That wasn't really my path. I ended up being there for, I think, 11 weeks and decided that that large theater working 50 hours a week for $25 an hour was not for me, $25 Mm -hmm. a week. Okay. So I left uh, the alley after one full production. I was an actor. I was doing laundry. I was working in the costume shop. Decided I wanted to kind of strike out on my own. So ended up in Dallas in 1982, 1982. Moved up here for a theater job that evaporated as soon as I got here. And, uh, Started auditioning around, realized that I wasn't quite fit for Dallas at the time. I had produced with my roommate from college an independent production of Lysistrata at the Bathhouse. It was the second theatrical production at the Bathhouse in Dallas. It was a for-profit production. We had borrowed like $10,000 with the hopes of making all this money. We promptly lost $10,000, so... I became kind of a indentured servant for a while in terms of needing to pay back ten grand. In the meantime, I met Catherine Owen. She was she was part of the company of actors we cast to do this postmodern version of Lysistrata. Catherine and I hit it off, so we decided to start our own kind of small ensemble. We were really both intrigued by the work of Steppenwolf, Moscow Arts Theater, and believed in ensemble work. So we went searching for a venue that we could use as a workshop, as it were, we found what is now the Undermain Theater down in Deep Ellum. Back mm-hmm. then, Deep Ellum was just nothing. It was a, a place where visual artists hung out. And our patrons were this beautiful couple, Jim and Michelle Hurling. Michelle was a French princess of sorts, a countess. And she had this gorgeous art gallery on the second floor. And they offered us their basement, which was just full of junk, basically. So they let us stay in the basement for free. And we just started kind of uh, doing scene work and stuff together, entertaining Michelle's party. She had Stanley Marcus and this beautiful pre-Columbian gallery. And we were the young artists that would show up for parties. Okay. <laughs> so Undermain was completely unrenovated at the time. There was no heat. There was no air conditioning. We could only work seasonally. Jim and Michelle came to us, I think it was April 1st of 1983, and said, we're doing a, there's a showcase of visual artists. Would you put on some shows for us, some plays? Mm-hmm. So we said, sure, we'll, uh, we'll do three solo works. And uh, like a hundred people showed up for this kind of art walk thing. And we were doing three solo works. I did Killer's Head uh, by Sam Shepard, 
We did something by Franca Rahm, who's Dario Fo's wife, and who was at the time a persona non grata in America because he was a communist. Okay. And uh, Twirler by Jane Martin. The shows were popular, so we decided, oh, we didn't have any seats, so it was all promenade performance. We decided to press on and do some theater in this space. We needed to come up with a name. We were under Main Street, so we said, let's call it Under Main Theater. So for the first two years, we would perform, but do it all for free, and we refused to let critics come in to see our work. So it was it was basically... We would have uh, bottles of gin and tonic, and we would sit on the doorstep and entice people to come downstairs and have a gin and tonic. And while they're down there, say, oh, we're going to do a little Samuel Beckett for you while you uh, drink this gin and tonic. So Kat and I would uh, do these solo pieces for, I guess, the first year we did solo pieces, enticing people with cocktails. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then going back to our, our favorite Dario Fo, this incredible uh, Italian writer at the time, We chose to do one of his works called Can't Pay, Won't Pay. We built a set out of cardboard. I was working as a scenic carpenter at the time at a local place where, you know, building sets for the opera. And some of my colleagues there were actual designers. I met them on the shop floor and they said, hey, do you want to work in a theater? And they were like, yeah. So they would come down and help design sets and lights. And it was all stuff we found on the side of the road. We kind of started developing a following, which was insane. Uh, again, not charging any money. People had to know about the theater. That was all word of mouth. We started producing and became successful, still keeping the critics out. Finally, they said, we have to be able to come see your shows. So I think we were a year and a half in, and we let the critics come. And they were like, wow, this is some really cool stuff happening in Deep Ellum. I guess our first big hit was we had read this, about this playwright named John O'Keefe, who had written this play called Ghosts. And it was all a series of weird monologues. But before we did Ghost, we, had, we were doing a play by John called All Night Long, and we invited John to come see it. We flew him in from, Los An- or from the Bay Area. He stayed on somebody's couch. John loved it. He loved the play and then offered us more of his work to premiere. And he said, let me come direct some stuff for you guys. And he was already pretty well known on the West Coast. So John came in and started directing shows with us starring in it, and we became this kind of phenom, you know, the plays started becoming extraordinary. We were ensemble based, as I mentioned, and that first play Ghost that John did was like just incredible. We sold out 100% of the shows. By then we were asking for donations at the door, so that helped uh, underwrite some of the costs. After Ghost, which was a huge hit, we were, not, we were probably three years in by then, we started writing to playwrights that were recommended to us and Writers in New York and the Bay Area started sending us their work because they heard about this crazy little theater in Dallas. This is like mid-80s by now. And we started premiering their work, which was great because we would also offer the playwrights to come down and see their work and respond to it in rehearsals and then come back and see it in performance. And it just led to more and more writers sending us their work, which was fantastic. So the theater kept growing and, and the ensemble kept developing, which was amazing. So Undermain was like the first part of my theatrical career. I met Eric N., who's been a lifelong collaborator of mine. We produced one of his plays, The Red Plays, which was a triptych of plays about familial abuse. And it was this beautiful, gorgeous, language-based play with all these weird images. And Eric decided that he was kind of a fan of our work. And Mac Wellman, Susan Laurie Park, some of these kind of, at the time, they were the avant-garde writers in America. We also started producing Carol Churchill, 
although we invited her, she never was able to come. But we did a lot of Carol Churchill, and the, and the theater started to take off like a rocket ship. Even though we're still in a basement, limited to few seats, we also ran into uh, probably the, one of my favorite memories is we were doing David Rabe's play Goose and Tom Tom, which had failed on Broadway. It was with Madonna and Harvey Keitel. David Rabe directed it. So somehow we got the rights to it. There was a friend of David Rabe's in town, and he was an ex-football player, and he was in love with the work we were doing. We were in the middle of a run of David Rabe's Goose and Tom Tom, and we had been barely skirting the law in terms of our theater being out of compliance. I mean, this is still a basement. It was no sprinkler system. <laughs> we kept having troubles with fire marshals and building yeah, inspectors. We're like, hey, we're just artists. We, we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. So on this production of Goose and Tom Tom, finally, the, the city had had enough of us. So they brought the building inspector. They shut us down that during the day. We, we were expecting a full house that night. Contacted our audience because then by then all you had was cell phone or phone numbers, not even cell phones. Said, don't don't come tonight. There's no show. So we were about to we we're hanging out in the basement waiting for audience, and these three dudes in Hawaiian shirts came down. We're like, no show tonight. And they were all vice squad members. And they were like, we know. We're here to make sure you don't perform tonight. So these these really cool vice squad guys hung what? out with us. Yeah, drank beer. We all kind of went, well, our theater's closed down. We don't know what to do. Like the Fed showing up yeah, exactly. in Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was classic. So then we were on the move to try to find another theater space. And we kind of experimented around inside the Undermain building, which was still unrenovated like it is now. We found this building across the street, rented it, and turned it into a theater space. So by then we knew how to make a theater with second exits and all this stuff. So we opened up a second theater while Undermain was in the throes of what's going to happen to it. Started producing out of this totally different space. It was like 20-foot ceilings. We had built a second exit, a hallway, painted some lines on the dirt to make parking spots because you have to have designated sparking. And we operated on that space for about two or three years while Undermain building was bought and renovated. We were able to redesign how the basement space would look, which is how it looks now. We continued to produce we ended up with two theater spaces for a while. And then when Kitchen Dog Theater had launched down the street, they didn't have a home. So we were partnering with them. So they, we were sharing our space with Kitchen Dog. And at that time in Deep Elm, there was a ton of cool theater companies. Teatro Dallas, Theater Garage was happening. Pegasus Theater was down there. So there's a whole group of really interesting small theaters were producing in the area. Eventually gave up the Elm Street Theater and moved back to a fully renovated uh, basement space continued to produce there. And then as things go, Kat and I, who, who had joined together when we were just barely in our 20s, kind of grew apart. And it was time for us and the ensemble to break up and do our own things. I moved on to a company called Young Audiences of North Texas because I had to make a salary. I had been working as a commercial artist, did a bunch of TV work, film work, but it was so unsteady. Um, so I became an artistic director of an arts education agency that now has grown into big thought. And I was there for the transition. Um, spent my time there. In the interim, uh, I still needed to have my avant-garde thing. So I founded a new company called Project X and based it out of Southside on Lamar. Um, so daytimes I was doing educational, kind of arts education, nighttimes, avant-garde work down at Southside on Lamar. Very small studio stuff. Decided arts education was enough for me. In the interim, during all this period, starting in 1985, I worked with Shakespeare Festival of Dallas at the time as a guest artist starting in 85. I did four seasons in the 90s as a guest artist, 
as an actor and a director while I was doing Undermain. And uh, in around 2002, uh, they came to me and said, we need an artistic director. The company was having some difficult problems. So I said, sure, I'll be your artistic director. Uh, and I started literally as part-time because the theater, the company had some financial issues. And I came aboard as a kind of a change management team, eventually leaving young audiences when it became big thought and moving full-time to Shakespeare Dallas. Um, at the time, it was still Shakespeare Festival of Dallas. I was the artistic director part-time, then became three-quarters time, then full-time, and uh, literally have been here ever since. So, yeah, and my first job when I got here was to fix the company, literally, artistically and financially. We had a massive amount of debt, and uh, we had to figure out somebody to turn the company around. So, very brave board of directors decided to yeah, what stick a- with me. What a gift. <laughs> I know. And I didn't find out until my second year. So my, well, actually my first season, we had a full equity company. We're in the midst of rehearsals for Henry Four parts one and two. We had gotten this great playwright, John Flores, who works in town. He's the husband of Christy Vela, who I'd met at the Undermain and worked with. I'd met all these wonderful artists and wanted to employ them. But we were in the middle of rehearsals and I found out we had a $500,000 debt against a $500,000 budget. So it was really a tough time. But the board chose to pay that debt off or commit to paying it off. So we, while Fort Worth Shakespeare in the Park closed that very summer, we pressed on, produced, leaned down the organization, worked really hard, and figured out ways to pay the debt off. And since then, we've grown the company to uh, over a million dollars. Kind of in 2008, I think it was, I was serving as producing artistic director and our, at the time, executive director said, that's it, I'm done. I stuck my hand up and said, put me in coach. I'll do the executive director job too. (laughs) And uh, I think it was like later that year, we paid off the last part of the debt. I became executive director of the company as well as artistic director and have been here ever since producing. I still produce with my uh, label Project X, not very often, but in the interim, I was able to take a show called Diamond Dick, which was a story about the Tulsa race rides. Before anybody knew about it, about five years ago, we took it to uh, New York and played it at La Mama, which was a huge hit as part of a cycle of plays by that playwright, Eric N. I mentioned. Continue to work with Project X, but most of my work now is based in Shakespeare, Dallas. And all along the way, I've worked at most theater companies in Dallas Uh as a director and an actor. Wow. That's my short story of my career. I think I really would have liked to be doing theater in like the seventies and eighties when it was having that big regional boom. Like, it seems like that's the decade that just everything happened. Like every major city got their theater company. The stories are so similar. Like it's two friends and then they bring on five people and then the other one brings on five people and it just becomes this cultural gem somewhere along the way. That's very cool. Did you live in the Bay Area? At, uh, it was in uh, you were down in San Diego, weren't you? I was actually in Irvine, California, for a few years, and then LA for another year. Yeah, there were a ton of cool companies. Like in San Diego, there was a company called Sledgehammer that was doing. At the same time, I was doing Undermain. They were doing. There was a coterie of of small theaters doing this kind of extraordinary avant-garde work that you don't quite see anymore. And we were all kind of changing plays and exchanging playwrights. It was a really interesting network of small companies, I would call them. 
Yeah. That's so funny. You mentioned the way that Deep Ellum has changed over the years. My very first, what I call big girl audition after college, when I had my degree and I was going to go on my first professional audition was at Undermain. And so I was at my mom's house and, you know, I had my headshots, my resume. She was like, okay, where's your audition? I was like, it's in Dallas. You know, where in Dallas? And I was like, it's in Deep Ellum. And my mom, for reference, was raised on a farm. And so she goes, oh, Deep Ellum, they wear black lipstick there. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, I cannot like disassociate, like I cannot think about Undermain without thinking about (laughs) black lipstick. That's so true. Yeah, it was like the, uh, yeah, Deep Ellum was like that crazy bar scene. And I mean, when we first started there, the the punks kind of ruled the streets on roller skates. (laughs) Literally, there'd be bands of like 40... 40 people on roller skates rolling through with all their punk clothes on. And you're like, oh, stay off the streets. The punks are out tonight. It's so weird. And it's so different now, for sure. That's so funny. So, I mean, along this winding path, I mean, was there ever a time that you felt like you wanted to quit or throw in the towel? Yeah, all the time. (laughs) There was, you know, constantly before I came to Shakespeare Dallas, I had a pretty unstable career in terms of earning money because I'd mentioned like TV auditions, getting cast in Texas Walker Ranger, you know, and like, all right, I've made it. And that was the one episode I did one episode of, of uh, wishbone. And so every time I thought this is it, I'm going to make some money now. And then like it would dry up. So I often fantasized about moving to Australia for some reason. Like that was going to be a cure-all for me to move to Australia and start all over again. I guess ultimately it was just, I mean, as I mentioned, I worked as a scenic carpenter for many years and and I was a hack. I mean, I was a terrible carpenter, but I was kind of known for my speed. So I was really quick and the bosses liked me, but it was really tough to get up at 7 a.m., work your eight to 10 hour day, then go to rehearsal. And then on weekends, build the sets and then produce the shows. And and I was the first one in my group to have, to get married, which I did like around 28. And then the first one in my group to have children, which was, I was around 32. So the loud pressure there to be that wild independent artist, but also conform and support your family. I was blessed that my wife, Connie, was also an artist who belonged to another ensemble in town at the time which is long gone, another company that was down in the farmer's market area. So we both had our passions. And I guess that's what drove me the whole time was the the need to create. But there were oftentimes it was like, that's it. It's not going to work out. I've got to, you know, I've got to find it. I've got to become a, I'll open a taco stand in New Mexico. I'll become a trout fishing guide yeah, in Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My husband's fantasy is like, getting a cabin in Alaska and being a lumberjack. Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's his go-to. Like the opposite of anything yeah. of being an artist. <laughs> yeah. So you said you're you serve as both the executive and artistic director. So what are those two roles? Like what do those look like and then how do you switch hats in one day? Great point. So I've been doing that since I started at the Undermain, a very naive artist who learned how to do business, just basically balancing the checkbook and taught myself grant writing at Undermain. And because both companies, Undermain and Shakespeare Dallas, require most of our income has to come from contributed income. Our mission at Shakespeare Dallas is accessibility, which means that we have the like ridiculously low ticket price, give away tons of tickets, an education program that serves the community. 
at the Undermain, same same problem. We were dedicated to kind of new work and avant-garde work with a very limited seating capacity. So an executive director, a managing director, in that function, I raise money. I help run the company. I run the administrative side of the company. So there are admin positions that you have to kind of attend to, all the insurance and all the boring stuff that takes to keep a, a nonprofit corporation going. So I spend probably half my day working on those elements for Shakespeare Dallas. It's a myriad of contracts and relationships you have to negotiate. You have to meet with funders. And in my case, at Shakespeare Dallas, I've spent a lot of time working with the city. I mean, we have a five-acre amphitheater that we manage on behalf of the city of Dallas. It requires a ton of time and energy to make sure we're good stewards of that space. Then the artistic side is is choosing plays, uh, selecting the artists we're going to work with, watching through, going through auditions, monitoring the artistic product or artistic, you know, the shows we're doing, making sure they're of high enough quality, and making course corrections through that whole process. So I've been able to develop uh, a discipline of taking off my managing or executive director hat when I walk in the rehearsal room. And I know oftentimes when I'm cast as an actor in, in a Shakespeare Dallas show, and I, I don't advocate for myself if somebody says, you'd be great in this role. And I say, great, I'd love to do it. But I have to be disciplined enough to just shut my mouth and, and take direction from the director and not butt in when I see something that I think is not that I don't agree with artistically. I just, I'm. Yeah. Or you go, that looks expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got one of those in my house. I'll just bring it in. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I don't do as great a job. You know, I mean, when I'm directing my own shows, I'm often accused of buying my own props because I have a certain vision of something I want, especially when it comes to weapons and shows, you know, at Shakespeare companies, weapons are so important. So I have an image of what I want to use as a weapon in a particular Shakespeare tragedy, I'll just go off and buy it and pay for it out of my own pocket just so I can have exactly what I want without taxing the budget. But I'm fortunate to have a great team that supports me and, and allows me to do both functions and, and give me give me some space, you know, when I'm when I'm taxing myself as an artist or acting. And they know that there's always a joke about whatever role I'm playing. If I'm playing Shylock in Merchant of Venice, I'm going to be obsessed with money. If I'm playing Polonius in Hamlet, that I'm going to be a little bit crazy and a little bit nutty and worry about Take it. on that personality yes. <laughs> a little bit, just a little bit. And like scary ones like Titus, when I played Titus and Dronicus, everybody was just a little bit worried I was going to murder them. <laughs> so. so when it is time to sit down and curate a season, how do you do that? What does that look like for you? You know, it's, it's simpler for a Shakespeare theater company than you would imagine. Since I'd say 90% of our dramaturgy is, is Shakespeare. We have index cards with all the Shakespeare's plays and related plays, and we literally lay them out. And it's a bit of a formula at first where you say, okay, we've done these group of plays in the last five years. They're off the table. Let's look at the other plays. And then we have to kind of sort through and figure out, is it going to play at Samuel Grand Amphitheater? And, and we'll take risks. Uh, we produced Pericles, oh God, it might have been 10 years ago, a play that I was a huge fan of, but we knew would not sell well. So then it's about matching it with something that would, it would be more of an audience draw. Even choosing Titus Andronicus, this was when my colleague Renee Moreno was still around, and may you rest in peace. But Renee was like, he wanted to do Titus Andronicus for years. And so we had to kind of wait, wait for it, Renee. We'll do it around Halloween. It'll be great as a fall show. Okay, it's finally time to do Titus Andronicus. Sadly, Renee passed away before he could direct it. And then the other part of my job comes in, which is I need to find somebody who can direct this show 
and deliver it. And, and that's when I kind of rekindled my relationship with Christy Vela, who was the perfect director for that show. So choosing the shows and especially stepping outside the canon, which is the first, I think we went 40 years, this company did, before we did our first non-Shakespeare play. And that was a big decision for me. So I chose Cyrano de Bergerac uh, in our 40th season. Uh, we're about to roll up on our 50th. So it's only been 10 years that we've done non-Shakespeare titles. But we've done some Moliere since then. We did uh, Goldsmith's, oh my goodness, She Stoops to Conquer. Complete works of William Shakespeare abridged was one of the plays we chose to do. So we've been kind of branching outside Shakespeare a little bit, trying to get our audiences more accustomed to other classic literature. We did Pride and Prejudice a couple of years ago, or last year, last January. So, so kind of moving an audience base along is also really tricky, especially when you have 40 years of tradition. You're saying, okay, I'm gonna, we're going to start doing this now. We're going to start producing non-Shakespeare plays. And, and sometimes there's pushback, and, and you have to kind of take that, that criticism from your audience. That was actually my next question is, you know, you're no stranger to experimental work. And if you're kind of slowly introducing those contemporary adaptations or the um, experimental avenues of Shakespeare, it sounds like you like that, but you just got to convince an audience to go along with you. <laughs> exactly. And it takes, it takes time. I mean, yeah. I, I think that when I was a younger artist, I would just say, tough, this is the theater you get because of this, the stuff I love. But I've learned, you know, when you have a, a, a venue like Samuel Grant Amphitheater that sits 1,200 people on a Saturday night, you can't just say tough. This is the show you get. You get King John now because I think it's a really interesting play or Richard II. I would love in the perfect universe to have a smaller venue to work in so we could look at some of these other titles by Shakespeare or related to Shakespeare, Duchess of Malfi, some of the other weird Jacobean pieces that I think would be great fun to produce but would definitely need a 200-seat house. Versus right. 1,200 seats. That makes sense. Have you seen or read District Merchants by Aaron Posner? I have not. It's very good. Tell me about it. District <laughs> Merchants? It's a, it's a contemporary... Oh, gosh. It's been a while since I've seen it. I think it's post... It's like a post-Civil War version of Merchant of Venice. Wow. And just the way they kind of like tweak the issues of the day, like instead of, oh my gosh, see now I can't think of any of anyone's name, the lead character that's kind of in both worlds, who is mistaken for rich in one city and poor in another city. Oh my Keep gosh. going. I'm almost Hold with on. you. Well, so instead of that, they have like a light-skinned black man who in one city is known to be black and in another city oh. passes for white. And they just did such a good job. I saw it when I worked at South coast repertory and they, I mean, they had phenomenal cast and amazing. I, I'll definitely yeah, check it and out. I kind of was like, I don't know. I sat down and I was like, I don't know about this. You know, I think Shakespeare, you know, has its lessons and it works in the time that it's in. And then when I saw that, I was like, okay, I want more of this. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I love I this. I would love to. I'll make sure to read it. It sounds fascinating. Okay. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. So was there a moment that you remember that you were introduced to Shakespeare and fell in love with it? Or has it always kind of been a part of... You know, it's interesting. So I still do a monologue from Richard II that I learned in fourth grade. 
which is crazy. Uh-huh. I memorized this monologue for English class or something. And I really love that monologue, but I think it was high school when I first started. And, and this sounds goofy, but Romeo and Juliet is still one of my favorite plays. I, I love it. I know it's corny. I know it's his early work, but there's something about that play, maybe because I was around it in when I was a sophomore in high school or something, but it still comes back to me all the time. So I don't know if I like fell in love with Shakespeare because I didn't know how to speak the language. I was I was trained in uh, Moliere in college, so my training was more in the French theater. So that's a whole different verse structure. It's an Alexandrine verse structure versus an iambic pentameter. So when I first started doing Shakespeare for Shakespeare Dallas, I did not understand the meter and just would blow through it. So it's kind of like for me, it's been a growing appreciation over time. I think I did probably seven or eight Shakespeare productions before I fully understood, I not fully, you can never fully understand it, but I began to really investigate the language. And even as a director in the 90s, working for the company, I was really interested in the storytelling through pictures. So I directed the Scottish play and I directed Midsummer, these big spectacle-based plays. And it wasn't until like the mid-2000s that I began to really dig in on the language and the structure and the interiority of the characters. And, and I would have to say that my appreciation of Shakespeare grows every year. I mean, literally, I revisited Hamlet, which I directed my in 2003 or something like that. I revisited it as a director. I'd been it, played in it, and then came back to it back two or three years ago, and the play was completely different to me. So I think the great thing about Shakespeare is you keep, you reinvest in it, and it you continue to admire the genius and the, and the architectural subtlety of the characters, the language, the plots. And the more you know about it, the more you begin to make linkages to all the different plays. And they're like, oh, this is a kind of a small character study of this character that comes later. I'm not sure I ever was like, I'm in love with Shakespeare immediately. But it was like a fascination that, that keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper the older I get. Yeah, I agree. I had the same thing with Romeo and Juliet where I did it in high school. I, you know, we read it and studied it in college and I didn't not like it. I just knew, okay, it's one of the staples. It's one of the popular ones. And then I saw it at Utah Shakespeare festival. So my husband did a season there and it was a husband and wife duo. Well, no, I take that back. There was a husband and wife duo there, but it was a different show, but the actors, you know, really played them like they were 14 and I started to go oh no like they just they're kids and they made this huge like I was like she's acting like I acted in high school over (laughs) some boy like and I I just I had a totally different response to it where I was like someone please get involved (laughs) intercession needed now Yeah, yeah. Or I did Winter's Tale before the world shut down this year or last last year. And I had done the same role in college and I just had a completely different understanding of it. And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think as you as you change and mature or gain tenure as an artist, the more the plays are different for you. That makes sense. Like. People ask me, what's your favorite Shakespeare? And, you know, right now for me, it's King Lear just because of the complexity of growing older and the challenges of growing old and, and the fearfulness of of dying or going mad or something like that. I think my relationship with, changes, with Shakespeare changes over time. 
in inexplicable ways. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're going back to picking a season, what are you looking for from actors when you're ready to cast? Like, what are you looking for in an audition? That's a great point. I love to tell actors, I don't often, so this is just me, but I don't often have a preconceived idea of what I, who I want in the show. I'm looking for somebody that, that handles the text well, that is willing to take some risk. But oftentimes it's through the audition process that I find the kind of focus of the play. So one example for me is when I was doing Pericles, there's this impossible character, Gower, who's basically the storyteller of the entire play. Theoretically, an old poet, an old man poet. In the process of producing that play, it was all the other pieces were dropping in, but there was no singular man who I saw was like, that's the perfect Gower. But there were a lot of these really talented women who could sing. So in the callback section, I said, could you sing me 16 bars, blah, blah, blah. So we ended up making Gower Gaia and split it between three women. And they part sang the part and part spoke it. But it made sense, Gaia being uh, Mother Earth or something like that, to totally change the focus of that character. And I've also, like in the middle of audition, said that could be a woman or that could be, you know, a person of color very easily. Oh, my God, that relationship makes so much sense to me now. Let's do that. So I encourage actors not to pre preconceive whether or not they are right for a role, but rather just go take a chance. You never know what's in the director's mind. You could change their mind by by your sheer audition. And literally that's happened to me so many times where I might have an idea of a direction to go, but when the talent base presents itself, you go, this is the direction we should go now and kind of rebuild the show based on who I see, literally. And I think that in a city like Dallas in particular, where you have a really great talent base, but you never know who's going to show up to audition, it's easier for me to kind of wait to see who comes and then build from the ground up. Like I have, I have an, a loose idea. People come in and change my mind. Like, oh, I never thought of that. Let me try that. Call them back for that role. Oh, wow, this is a great fit. Let's let's start building with this idea. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. So there's no darling of Shakespeare Dallas per se. <laughs> I would not say so. We have kind of a loose. I, I, I guess we call it our invisible company. Okay. Uh, on any given production, we probably have 50% of returning mm-hmm. folks who've done shows with us before, have moved through the canon. Uh, T.A. Taylor's a perfect example from leading band to, to now he plays the old graybeards, even as he says. So we do operate a bit like a Shakespeare company in terms of you're a leading man now. Now you're one of the character players. Now you're going to be, a, I'm a graybeard now, you know. <laughs> you just move through the canon in w- different ways. That's cool. And then we also... I mean, I always think of our company as a, a place to learn because I learned so much here at Shakespeare Dallas. I, I want to share one one story. When I was doing, in 1993, I was cast Richard III. It was like my third Shakespeare play in my life. And I was playing Catesby, which is one of Richard III's henchmen. And at one point, a, a couple of the actors pulled me aside and said, you don't know what you're doing, do you? And I said, what do you mean? I was the artistic director at Undermain. And they said, you don't understand the verse work, what you're doing. And I was like, well, no, but who cares about verse? So they they literally kind of coached me up and and took care of me, taught me how to do iambic pentameter and and how to speak the part and how to mind the the, the uh, punctuation. So I've always thought of the company as kind of a learning company for everybody, and, and I've asked our our tenured actors to make sure to watch out for other people and say if they're struggling, help them out. You know, we don't 
oftentimes we don't have a vocal coach with the company or something like that. So we kind of rely on more tenured people to say, here's some, here's some things I've learned about handling that kind of passage or something like that that might help you. So we'll take risks on people that might be, have done musical theater, which I find uh, people that are strong in musical theater can handle verse pretty well as well, but may never have done Shakespeare. So, so as far as the, you know, who do we cast? There's, there are certain actors that will are go-tos for us that we know we can trust, but we try to put them in different roles, give them a challenge too. So it's not the same thing over and over for them. But we're always looking for new folks to join. Also, I should mention working outdoor theater. I always liken our People that do that are like extreme athletes of some kind. I mean, if you can imagine the, <laughs> the summer heat and you're choosing to do outdoor theater yeah. three nights a week, yeah, it's it's tough. And and uh, we want people that are strong or physically fit or at least have the tenacity to perform outdoors. And sometimes it's not for everybody, and we acknowledge that. Right. So for those who are new to the area or maybe haven't seen a Shakespeare Dallas show, what can they expect as an audience member? Well, hopefully they can expect clear storytelling, number one. The advice I got early on from a colleague of mine is direct as if you were a dog watching the show so that what does a dog look at? What does a a dog understand? So, I mean, working on that large of a scale, I'm trying to make sure as a dog watching the play that I can at least follow the action somehow. At least when I'm directing, I try to keep very clear storytelling via visuals. And then we also try to make the language as clear as possible so that, you know, and cutting out arcane words or something, there are always edits in our production to take away some of the stuff that's so difficult to understand. I think you can expect a visceral storytelling, you know, something that's got some passion and some urgency. When I go to England or to London, sometimes I think this is too slow. Uh, For us, I think there's a certain pace you have to keep up and we're competing against the great outdoors. So if you're not keeping the story, keeping the audience a bit on their toes, I mean, they're having a, an adult beverage, they're eating food. So you've got you've to keep the thing moving. You can't just sit back and, and just relax into it. I think you have to kind of stay on your toes and move the play forward, move the story forward. I would like to think those are some aspects of our program. And fun. You should expect an environment both on stage and off, even in a tragedy where things are happening and, and you're enjoying yourself. It's not laconic or or slow paced or you know unless it's meant to be if that makes sense i think many theaters are moving away from that where it's you know you dress to the nines you get ballet parking you show up right on time and da 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 and it ends up being you know 100 150 dollar evening and it's more like if you want to get up and go get more wine like you should be able to do that totally like we're we're fine we'll we'll keep going Right. Yeah. <laughs> so our theater is very interactive and, and some of the comedies, you know, we really encourage the players to interact with the, you know, if you'd imagine Shakespeare's company talking to the groundlings, the people that were standing right in front of the stage. If we're doing a comedy, we try to find a lot of interaction with the audience. We love to break the fourth wall when we can. I mean, we're, we have wireless microphones, so the actors are all on mics. So there are certain technical issues where you can't just walk right in front of a speaker. We do try to keep it casual and friendly and fun. In fact, fun is one of our core values. We did the strategic planning process and found fun came up so often in every level of our organization that we had adopted as a core value for our company. If we can't have fun creating theater, then what the heck are we doing? I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, we take our art seriously, but we also want to have fun creating it. 
Sure. Well, I want to wrap up, but I know that you and many other artistic directors are coming off of a very difficult year. So what are you most looking forward to in this new season and in this new year? Well, I look forward to getting back together with people in a safe, socially distanced way, at least in the summertime. We've got some programming planned right now where we're going to keep our park socially distanced, really small casts, possibly doing some stage readings that will keep actors isolated. But I really want to get back to convening together, to being together and working together and playing together. I can't say how much I miss it. It's like insane. Like all artists, I, I too am suffering from a little minor depression that I haven't been able to create. Uh, so I look forward to finding ways to create safely. And I look forward to kind of a, a renewed spirit of coming together, which I really think people are going to be excited to come back together in a safe way. But, uh, you know, I feel this yearning in our community to be together again, to, to experience art together again. And that's really driving me right now, which is exciting. That's great. Well, this was a really lovely conversation. Um, yes, it was. Thank you. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to leave us with? Just deeply appreciate the community. I think Dallas at Fort Worth is a great area. And I've made a commitment of staying here for over 30 years. And I hope other folks who are involved in theater will make this their home. Because I think it's a really important thing to have a vibrant home for the arts and for artists. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Raph. And I look forward to uh, joining the team and seeing you tomorrow. Will I see you tomorrow? You'll see me tomorrow. Yay! Woo! <laughs> I'm so excited. A, yeah, us too. We're really thrilled that you're coming aboard. And I hope we don't scare you off or anything like that. <laughs> We're a bit nutty crew sometimes. I think I'll, I'll, I'll manage. I'll be good. I'll be good. I suspect you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will let you go. Enjoy your Sunday and I'll see you tomorrow then. Sounds great. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you, Raphael. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, friends, that was Raphael Perry. He is the executive and artistic director of Shakespeare Dallas. And if you didn't pick up from our conversation, I recently started at Shakespeare Dallas full time. So it was very cool to interview my new boss. I already have the best coworkers ever. I have been trying to get into a career like this one for about five years now. So I'm deeply grateful to be on their team. Shakespeare Dallas is offering some free programming right now. It's called Shakespeare and the Suffragists. It was written and directed by their associate artistic director, Jenny Stewart. So head to their website and enjoy that. And there is a lot of exciting programming being dreamt up for 2021. So stay tuned for more. Bye-bye.